Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On the eve of the Civil War, three American businessmen launched an audacious plan to create a financial empire by transforming communications across the hostile territory between the nation's two coasts. In the process, they created one of the most enduring icons of the American West, the Pony Express. Daring young men with colorful names by, like Bronco Charlie and Sadoff Jim galloped at speed over a vast and unforgiving landscape, etching an irresistible tale that passed into myth almost instantly. Equally an improbable success and a business disaster, the Pony Express came and went in just 18 months, but not before uniting and captivating a nation on the brink of being torn apart. There's a new book out from author Jim DeFelice. Uh, it's West Light Lightning, the brief legendary ride of the Pony Express. Jim Felice is the co-author of Chris Kyle's number one New York Times bestseller, American Sniper. He's also author of Omar Bradley, General at War, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Codename Johnny Walker. He writes acclaimed mystery thrillers, and he writes the novels in the Dreamland series with Dale Brown. Jim DeFelice, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Oh, thanks a lot for having me, Tom. So, I, you know, I think all of us have an idea of the Pony Express. Before we get into some of the details, new uh, separate outs and myth from uh, fact, and it's a fascinating tale. I learned a lot reading the book. Um, why do you think it still holds uh, a place in our imagination? I think because, uh, you know, at its heart, it has everything that we, you know, even now still believe about America. We're very interested in speed, and obviously the Pony Express was all about speed at the time. It took, they revolutionized uh, how long it took to get information from one part of the country to another. Before the Pony Express, it could take months and months, uh, and it had to go, uh, messages had to go by boat from uh, the east, Washington, D.C., say, New York, Boston, uh, any of the cities on the east coast. Uh, You would put your mail in the, you would give it to the mailman, he'd give it to someone, it would end up on a steamer, and six months later it's in San Francisco. With the Pony Express, you give it to the mailman, he puts it on a train, and within two weeks, say, it's it's out in California. So, you know, that idea of things, information moving very quickly is still important to us. At the same time, you know, it's man against nature. You know, you have, uh, you know, 19, 20-year-olds, racing across desert, uh, climbing up mountains where, you know, there's snow drifts 30, 30 feet. Uh, so, you know, that's still very important to us. And you have the ideas of, you know, the rugged individualism, the, the, kid, on the kid on the horse against the elements, against native, hostile Native Americans, against, you know, your possible miscreants with uh, trying to shoot them and steal the mail. So all of those things, I think, are still, you know, important to us today. Hmm. You begin the book uh, with the election of Abraham Lincoln, right? Um, as an illustration, this is about, uh, I guess, about halfway through the, the 18-month run of the, the Pony Express. Absolutely. And what I wanted, the reason I did that is I wanted not just to talk about the Pony Express, uh, but I wanted to use the Pony Express as a way to explore what was happening in America at the time. Uh, you know, that's 1860 when, when Lincoln gets elected and the, the country is just on the cusp of, obviously, a war, but also tremendous change. You have new technologies, the telegraph, the railroads, uh, and, of course, you have a lot of social strife and, you know, and, and all of those things. It's a very interesting time in American history. But, unfortunately, uh, because the Civil War is there, we tend to, people that talk about that time in history tend to focus on the Civil War and on things that are happening in the East, 
not in the West, whereas there's a lot of very critical and important things that are happening, uh, you know, in the West, whether it's Utah, California, um, you know, Nebraska, those areas are undergoing tremendous change as well. In fact, you write, uh, this first chapter, I think uh, you write, there are faster changes in, in those times than in our times, and that's pretty fast, because things are changing fast in our times. Absolutely. And they, you know, they also, uh, you know, it also, time is kind of a mental conce- concept as well, and, um, you know, that's, uh, I think we're kind of used to things kind of immediately being different, whereas when you lived in 1860, say, you know, your perspective was, uh, I guess you had a longer view of time, that might be the way to put it. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned some of the, you know, the, the, the railroads coming, um, you know, sewer systems. <laughs> That's sewer a big system. innovation. Yeah. Radical, you know, we don't think yeah. about that. Sewer systems, water systems, we don't really kind of put a, a huge amount of thought, you know, into those things. I just go into the, you know, the sink and, tur- and turn it on. But, you know, in 1860, having actually having any water that you could actually drink in some in many places was radical hmm. now the Pony express in in some ways we get into talking about specifics um, one of the innovations here or or the central ideas is that this this information is a commodity right and we're going to get it faster and you write in the book that over time today and then, um, we want information and will adapt to innovations uh, pretty quickly to get information faster. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and there's simple adaptations. For instance, with the Pony Express, you wanted to you want to have the lightest possible piece of mail. So you were writing on a piece of onion skin, and yeah, you kind of like that tiny little you know handwriting getting it in there. <laughs> I mean, that's one adaptation. It's a you know, kind of a silly adaptation, but it but it was. You know, very real and had a practical effect uh, in how you would send the message. Maybe a, a more sophisticated adaptation would be using the telegraph, and you learn to, you know, again, be very economical in the way that you're speaking. Just as today, if you're using Twitter, um, although they've changed the the, uh, the character limit, but again, you know, you're using, you're kind of adapting the way you talk to people. Uh, so the, the official name was the Central Overland and Pikes Peak Express Company. So good thing they got the Pony Express. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty absolutely. You know, there's a there's a whole mouthful for you, right? But you know, you know the what that kind of hints at is uh, the actual vision that William Russell, who is one of the the three partners of the Pony Express, had. He was he was definitely interested in getting information from point A to point. Very quickly as an entrepreneur, he's a businessman. But the thing that he really wanted to do was to create this vast empire. So if you wanted to get information out across the West, whether it was from Missouri to California to um, someplace in between to go to Salt Lake, which was at the time was becoming a uh, very important uh, location you would be using his company, and you would use his company not just to send mail, but to send packages to transport yourself because he'd had a stagecoach company to transport military supplies because he had uh, ox trains. So anything that went from point A to point B out in the Old West, he wanted to be involved. They had a bank. They had insurance company. They had stores. And he had this great vision for, you know, for this financial juggernaut and uh, that moved 
information, money, and, and people. Now, you may say, that's wow, that's, uh, that was really f- far out there and just wild and crazy thinking in 1859 or 1860 even. But the truth is, it had actually been done earlier, about two decades earlier, starting in upstate New York when the Erie Canal opened up in New York City, uh, was suddenly connected to um, to the near what we would call now the near west, and that company is still with us. It's called American Express. So if the Pony Express had actually you know succeeded, instead of you know that we would not be leaving home without the Pony, I guess mm. instead of American Express. Yeah, the, I guess competitors American Express and Wells Fargo, the, those two still with us. Absolutely, Wells Fargo, um, which is start starts. Uh, or started by two of the uh, two of the three principal original principles for American Express, Wells Fargo becomes a direct competitor to uh, Russell Majors and Waddell, and they they have a slightly different business model. Uh, Russell Majors and Waddell they they want the Pony Express. They want to own everything, every part of it. They want to control the stage line. They want to control everything they can touch. Wells Fargo takes a slightly different approach. They partner with much, much smaller companies, and they kind of build their, they're not only building their business up around those smaller companies, but they're spreading their risk. So if one of those smaller companies or one of those smaller lines doesn't turn a profit or fails, they're insulated. Um, They're also not quite as dependent on the government uh, which it happens to be uh, probably the biggest reason of the downfall for the, not just the Pony Express but the parent companies. Mm. You write in the book that uh, the, the founders here had a, a big vision, and that the Pony Express specifically was was uh, kind of a lost leader. It was always that, well, they they knew that they were going to lose money. They were they were paying four hundred dollars for a horse. Now, they, they were getting the best horses that they possibly could, but that was a tremendous write, a, 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 you know, markup from what horses normally would cost. They were paying 19- and 20-year-old kids about $100 a, a month. And I have to tell you, that was at a time when $100 was really $100. Uh, but they, they were so, Russell especially, was so convinced that the idea of moving mail that quickly across America would attract enormous attention. And he was right. He, everyone knew who the Pony Express was. Everyone knew that the Pony Express, and this is I'm not just the people who were served by it, but the people back east. And you look at the newspapers of the time, and they're all filled with these stories. This just in from the Pony Express. You know, the Pony Rider said this in his bulletin. So it was a great, tremendous... PR um, thing. I mean, the we'll put it this way: the riders, they couldn't buy a drink in their own town. They were they were the rock stars, the the superstars of of their time. You know, at the same time, Russell was hoping all of this publicity would would help him force the the government, or not force, so convince maybe is a better word, uh, to give his company a very very large um, contract to deliver the mail in the from basically from Missouri all the way to California. That would give him a monopoly on that delivery service. It would help him with some cash problems that were going that the company had. 
And, you know, it was a million dollars, so you could use some of that money to help build the infrastructure of these massive conglomerations of companies that he was doing. Uh, not to give too much away, but at the, at the end of the day, relying on congressmen, even if they're somewhat corrupt, may not be the, uh, the, the best way to build your business. <laughs> uh, they don't end up with, uh, with uh, anywhere near the money that they were hoping for. And unfortunately, Mr. Russell at that point uh, kind of turns to the dark side. Hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, there is a dark side here, right? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's, there is a dark side. He, um, I, I guess, I get into much more detail in the book, but I guess the easiest way to explain it is he starts uh, kiting uh, checks and uh, pledging money that he doesn't have, somehow ends up with, uh, with some bonds uh, that the government was holding but didn't actually own, and the whole thing kind of comes crashing down around his around his uh, his ears and the only two things save him definitely the, the coming civil war and all that conflict makes uh, kind of takes everybody's attention off of the scandal and probably the congressman that he had um, let's say persuaded will be generous uh, to vote his way didn't want all of the details of what that persuasion involved to come out so he ends up escaping, not having to go to jail, but his career is effectively over. Mm. And the, you know that, that part of it's very American as well. It's uh, oh, it's, there you uh, go. <laughs> that's still you know, with us, unfortunately, it's positive and the negative. Uh, the, the idea here is very modern. It strikes me that, that this is a this is a disruptive innovation, right? And it captures the imagination of people. And that was the idea, and, th- and then they were hoping to go on from there, right? Absolutely, and then once you know, once they had, you know, everybody paying attention to them, then they would, you know, they would, that would be where I'd want to. You know, oh my goodness, I have to use the Pony Express stagecoach to get to, you know, wherever I'm going because it would be foolish not to take the best service. Um, you know, you know. So once he has it, kind of us in that mind space, uh, you know, where else are we going to go? Mm. We have an email come in, and by the way, you can join the conversation here by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. And we are talking with Jim DeFelice about his latest book, West Like Lightning, The Brief Legendary Ride of the Pony Express. And uh, here's what uh, Steve says. He says, speaking of an American Express still being with us today, there's another evolved express company from that day, which is with us still. It even shares principal partners and founders with American Express, Wells Fargo. So he, he Absolutely. He, yeah. he, you know, let's congratulate him for, you know, he knows his history. It's amazing how, you know, we think, or I think, maybe this is just me, I think of American Express or Wells Fargo as being totally, you know, just financial companies. But there was such a, such a strong connection between moving things and, you know, and finance at the time. We're talking about a period when, you know, when money was real, money was real gold. Uh, it wasn't a kind of a notion of some zero 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 and one somewhere in a in a computer, uh, and that was one of the big reasons that um, the the federal government wanted a connection, strong connection with California. Uh, they wanted the gold that had been discovered there to keep coming east, and especially with the war coming on, so it was very important to have those those quick uh, communications there. 
Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about the uh, the actual writers and what the experience would have been like. Uh, Jim DeFelice, you you retraced the the route, I believe. I did absolutely, uh, and I think I only got lost really bad once. So, and uh, that was you. Do you think it was Nevada? It might have been Utah. I think it might have been. You know, to be honest with you, if I had known where it was, I probably wouldn't have been lost. But, <laughs> right. Uh, it was a lot of fun anyway. Yeah, we'll talk about it following this break. This is Science by the Slice. Hot springs are windows to fluid rock interactions deep within the Earth, says USU geochemist Dennis Newell. Studying the spring's chemical composition yields clues about the thermal water's origins, he says. The water may be young, having recently fallen as precipitation from the sky, or it could have been stored in underground aquifers for tens of thousands of years. Chemical analysis reveals the water's fingerprint, a history of where it came from and where it's been. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. You're listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, we're talking about the fascinating history of the Pony Express. Uh, technically, the company was the Central Overland and Pikes Peak Express companies called the Pony Express or the Pony. I learned that from reading the book. Jim DeFelice's new book is called West Like Lightning, The Brief Legendary Ride of the Pony Express. Um, and you're welcome to join this conversation. Love to uh, hear your um, questions or your comments just talking to a friend this morning who said he had a great-grandfather who rode in the Pony Express. Maybe you have a, an ancestor who rode in the Express. Uh, uh, we'd love to have you engage with the program. Uh, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or the toll-free number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. So, Jim DeFelice, um, take us on a typical ride, and, and, and tell us about the typical rider. I, I would imagine... This was confirmed as I read your book, but I can imagine the rider needed to be on the small side, kind of for the same reason the jockey is small. What what else? I, I would say uh, that the riders were generally uh, wiry, uh, light. The lighter, the better. Um, so there wasn't an actual height requirement. The, the real requirement was that you had to be a good rider. But uh, from what we know, as a general rule, they were all um, you know, relatively light. They're 19, 20 years old. The big, the interesting thing that, that I discovered about these guys, uh, you know, I would, would have thought that because it's the Pony Express and it's all about speed, that if they're going to look back and brag about what they did or, you know, just recount it for, for someone, they would be talking about how fast they went. But the reality is that when you look at the accounts, uh, while they certainly did go fast, and we can tell because we have the postmarks um, of the of the letters that were, or many of the letters, I should say, that were transported. The thing that that impressed them was how far they went. So that typically on a on a the typical ride that they would go, they would uh, get their mail. They were actually already in a in a sack, a special. It was called a mochila. It had four 
little pouches, and it was made to fit right over the horse's saddle. And they would ride from a, a large station to a, what we'll call a transfer uh, place, which would be a, roughly 10 miles. It depends on where we're talking and, uh, and when, but about 10 miles. There would be um, another person waiting there, usually a, a much younger uh, boy, uh, or sometimes a, sometimes an old an old person that just happened to have the job. They would um, ex- he'd be holding the horse, another horse, a fresh horse. You would jump off of your horse, grab your the mochila, which is kind of like a it's like a leather blanket almost with four pouches uh, sewn into it. Throw it on the new horse, on the new saddle. Hop on the horse and gallop away. You generally would gallop in and out of uh, any of the stations because you know you're 19, 20 years old. If there's a young woman nearby, you want to be impressive. You would do that. You would ride, and it didn't matter what time of day. It didn't matter what the weather was. Uh, you would just ride, keep doing that. And the uh, stations, the major stations, would be oh, uh, well, they're about. 100 miles or so uh, apart, and once you came to the station, your job for that day uh, was done, uh, depending on when, uh, as, soon, as long as there wasn't mail coming from the other direction, and you would hand off uh, to, a, to a new rider who would continue on the way. Meanwhile, you probably were going to go to sleep, and that meant bunking down, uh, usually in a stable, um, or if you were really, really lucky, you got to sleep in the attic of the uh, of the of the major station. Um, it was the reality of the job was not particularly glamorous, uh, but the image of the job and the pay were very glamorous. And so, as you mentioned before, the riders, at least in their local areas, were celebrities. Oh, absolutely. So we were talking. You were asking about riders. And we'll just take one rider who's reputed to have been the first rider ever. Uh, well, like a lot of things about the Pony Express that may or may not be true, but he certainly has some great stories attached to him. His name is Johnny Fry, and he rode out of uh, St. Joe's, Missouri. He was a Kansas boy, and uh, Kansas is just across the river there from, from St. Joe's. And... One of the things about Johnny, uh, Johnny is sometimes kind of given some credit for inventing the round donut. Now, I don't know if that story is true, but the way that the story goes is that there was a certain young woman who lived on a farm that Johnny uh, rode by every, you know, twice a week on on his trips. And she decided she was going to win his heart, as many girls at the time did by baking some nice little crullers, which were kind of straight uh, straight donuts, in case you're not familiar with those. We still have them. But Johnny couldn't grab them as he, as he rode by. So being a very, very clever young woman, she formed them into the round shape with a little hole in the middle. And as Johnny rode by, he'd stick his finger in and he could eat the donut on his way, just kind of twirling it around. <laughs> I don't know if that's really a true story, but, you know, it's kind of cool. It's, uh, it's just uh, one of those kind of fun things that's associated with, uh, with the Pony Express. Yeah, you, you want it to be true, right? Yeah, you want it, you know, there are so many legends and mm-hmm. so many stories. 
And you know, a lot of a lot of historians kind of poo-poo them, and they say, "Oh, you know, that's uh, so and so never rode." Oh, this, you know, that legend. What is that? You know, what does that make sense? Uh, that ghost story. Come on, did it? But to me, those those stories are to be celebrated, and I have a lot of fun with them in the book. Um, I think that while, and I do try to separate fact from fiction, but I want to celebrate the legends and celebrate the kind of deeper truth that's underneath those stories. I mean, when you're talking about, I mean, that's a love story with uh, Johnny Frey and, and his, his girlfriend there. The stories of endurance, um, you know, again, they're showing us what we value even today. We still value young love, and we certainly value endurance. I want to talk a bit uh, about the distance and the, and the speed here. This was pretty revolutionary at the time, right? Uh, so how, how far was the route and uh, how, how fast? And, and again, you've talked about this a little bit, but maybe reemphasize how, what a difference this was in speed. It, it basically, the route itself is about 1,800 miles. Now, some riders apparently had kind of little detours that they would cut a, cut a couple of miles off uh, here and there. But you're basically talking about 1,800 miles. We happen to know, they had advertised that they would do the, that they would do the route in 10 days. And not through me, but through some fantastic work by stamp collectors who have uh, collected or and cataloged many of the existing uh, envelopes that were used, or covers as they call them, that were used on the Pony Express, and now obviously they're quite valuable. But there are also postal marks on there, some of them handwritten, which, is all, which interested me. I didn't realize that when I first had, had seen those. We know that, that we know how long pretty much every route, uh, every time they went, uh, east or west, we know how long it took. Most of the times, even in the winter, even in the worst weather, it took 10 days to get from St. Joe's to Sacramento. Coming back the other way, now this, this was kind of a mystery to me, and there's a lot of jokes on, on why this, this is so. Maybe the bars were better, someone suggested, even though they're really the same. I, I don't know, but it, it usually coming west to east, it took about 11 days. I'm not sure. I don't know why that would be, but uh, for some reason, uh, you know, you, you would think, you know, usually you have the wind at your back if you're going west to east, but I don't know. It did take a little bit longer. And they, they ride night and day? Oh, absolutely. Night and day through the worst weather. I mean, there are some, uh, you know, accounts of in the Sierra Nevada. I mean, you you know, you still have snow. Even uh, there's probably still snow in, in on the trails there, even now. Uh, so they would, um, you know, it, it didn't matter what the weather was. They, uh, if you had a really really bad snowstorm and the horse with the snow up over the horse's chest, then uh, then you might pause that day. Uh, but otherwise, but otherwise, you rode no matter what. They um, the pony stopped service for about. Two weeks, um, actually a little bit more than that, uh, because some of their stations get burned down during the Pyramid uh, Indian War. Uh, but once, except for that, the service is continuous. And what's remarkable to me is that they delivered every uh, every piece of mail that they were given 
as far as we know. And there was only one kind of sack of mail that didn't make it to its destination and kind of disappeared. And that also was during the Pyramid Lake Indian War. But I have to say, surprisingly, that that sack turned up months later. So, you know, I mean, they have a pretty good record. That's, uh, you know, not to disparage my mailman, but I can't uh, swear that he's delivered every piece of mail that he's supposed to. Mm. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, Indians. Uh, there would be uh, other dangers as well. There, there's one uh, story that sticks out at me. Uh, one fellow got shot in the head with an arrow. Uh, absolutely. That's um, And now I have to – we'll go into some more detail on the book. I have to say that some of the legends and some of the stories, mm, you know, how accurate they they are – you know, uh, you got to read some of my footnotes to see, I guess. But um, the Indians, in, with the exception of the Pyramid Lake Indian War, which, uh, in fairness, I have to point out, was instigate, almost certainly instigated by whites and lasted a very short time. Uh, Indians were not, at this period of time, they were not uh, much trouble for the, for the Pony Express. Um, much greater dangers were kind of natural, you know, natural things. There was quicksand in Utah, west of the, uh, west of the, you know, the, the Great Salt Lake. You, you know, you, if you don't stick exactly to the known trails, you can run into quite a lot of trouble, even with quicksand. Uh, in the mountains, uh, the, the trails are extremely narrow, and you're trying to go fairly quickly, uh, and it's easy to, you know, fall off. It's also easy at night to get lost if you, let's say, nature calls, and nature has a way of doing that at an inopportune time. And uh, there's stories of, um, there's uh, one story of a rider who, you know, had to deal with uh, nature and found that his horse had wandered off. As another instance where uh, a horse was um, shot and uh, then just couldn't make it, and uh, the rider had to hoof it on his own two feet to the station. So there were all sorts of things going on to kind of try to keep these guys from delivering the mail. Maybe tell us, uh, there there were some some writers that more famous than others, right? Uh, maybe tell well, us my, about, about one I, I got to tell you my favorite, my favorite rider, the greatest Pony Express rider of all time, Buffalo Bill Cody. I mean, Buffalo Bill Cody, greatest most fantastic Pony Express rider of all time. The only problem was he probably did not <laughs> ride for the Pony Express. <laughs> he told everybody he did. He kind of built the, the Wild West show around the Pony Express. So just about every show that the Wild West had started with a, with a kind of little uh, sketch of the Pony Express. And, of course, the Pony Rider would be chased by Indians or robbers or, or someone else, and everybody really loved it. But, um, but unfortunately, research uh, kind of shows that Buffalo Bill may have been spinning a bit of a yarn there when he talked about the Pony Express. But I'll tell you something. Well, first of all, what I should say in his defense is that he was really a hero. He had uh, won the Medal of Honor, and in a lot of ways, uh, he, his, the image that he portrayed, while certainly bigger than life, was based on a lot of facts. 
by including the Pony Express in the Wild West shows, he did us a huge service because the reason that most of that most of the legends and the stories and even the the facts that we know today about the Pony Express remain with us was because he made it so famous at the the end of the the uh, 19th century that you know it became kind of this huge genre in uh, in American uh, literature and entertainment so you had the Wild West show, you had plays, you had, um, I don't think you had any operas, but you certainly had a lot of books uh, and, and stories about the, the adventures of the Pony Express. Now, most, if not all, of the stories that come out in that period are more fiction and a lot more fiction, in fact. But, uh, but even so, it gave us a basis to kind of to go back and, and start kind of parsing out, okay, well, this really did happen. This, you know, didn't, obviously didn't happen. And then there's a huge amount of things in the middle that, well, that might have happened. Who knows? What about uh, Wild Bill Hickok? Ah, uh, Wild Bill Hickok, one of the great gunfighters of, of all time, kind of a cranky individual, but a great gambler. He worked for the parent companies and uh, was injured in the, just in the period just before the Pony Express starts. He, um, he was driving, uh, reputed to have been driving a uh, ox cart and uh, had an accident. And he was recovering at a uh, Pony Express uh, station, or stop, I should say. And um, he, when his, really kind of his whole start uh, as, um, I would call him a gunfighter, I guess we won't try to cast any aspersions or, or make any judgments. Uh, he uh, had a, a, a shotgun, and he was behind a calico curtain when uh, a uh, criminal tried to uh, attack the station owner's uh, wife. Now, that's his version of the story. Um, the station owner, or the man, I should say the, the man who died, and the several men subsequently died in that battle, uh, or exchange. Uh, they had a slightly different version, but, you know, the winner gets to write history, and uh, uh, Wild Bill went on from there. Um, before we go to break, when we come back from break, I want to I want to bring the route through Utah. Of course, the route did go through Utah, and you have a chapter on Utah, the Mormons, and, uh, and a very fascinating character called uh, Howard Egan. Um, I want to talk a bit about uh, those uh, topics and get to the reenactors of, of today. And and your trip, Jim DeFelice, through uh, through through the route. Um, this is just a just a throwaway. That's maybe a couple of sentences. It was so fascinating to me. I have to ask you about this. You talk about a William Vischer, an alcoholic who liked to give temperance lectures. Um, and you go on to say that there were quite a few. <laughs> I guess in that time, that's just like I say, just a, just a, a side. I don't know well, if there's you anything know, you'd like I, to say I, about that. You know. They were experts on the subject. I mean, what can I say? They probably gave it up many times. Yeah, I guess so. I guess if you're dealing with it, uh, then maybe you'd give lectures on it. I guess this was a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the mentioning alcohol, the, the uh, one of the owners of the Pony Express and the parent companies, Alexander Majors, who's a character in his own right, uh, he was um, he was very a religious man, and he would give the Bible to every new employee, make them 
uh, swear on that Bible that they would uphold the rules and regulations of the company. And two of the most important to him rules and regulations of the company were no cussing and no drinking. Now, I have to say, based on based on the, the testimony of pretty much everybody that worked at the, the Pony, certainly the Pony Express and uh, and some of the other the other companies involved, that those two rules were obeyed only when Mr. Majors was right in front of your face. So, uh, you know, even even the strictest or holiest among us, uh, you know, have certain standards that. Uh, maybe the rest of us don't always keep. Let's take a break. We're talking with Jim DeFelice's latest book is West Like Lightning, The Brief Legendary Ride of the Pony Express. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie, and restaurant reviews, available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. I'm John Kovash, Utah Public Radio correspondent for Moab in Southeast Utah. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for stories for any of us at the station, please visit our website at upr.org or call 1-800-826-1495. You can also share your ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Be sure to include the hashtag IMUPR. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we reached our last segment with Jim DeFelice. His new book is West Like Lightning, The Brief Legendary Ride of the Pony Express. It's out now, well worth read, very uh, fascinating uh, account of uh, this fascinating period in U.S. history, which is with us uh, still. Um, and so, Jim DeFelice, I want to talk about the route through Utah. Of course, Pony Express uh, did come through Utah, so... Tell us about where where it went through Utah, and entering through Echo Canyon. Did it go through Salt Lake City? Oh, absolutely. Salt Lake City at the time, you know, it's obviously this is early in Salt Lake City's history, but even then, it's you know it's being developed. Uh, it becomes uh, an important uh, important place in the West. Uh, the Pony uh, offices are at um, you know the hotel, the the finest building uh, in. In town, which is pretty much in keeping with what they they uh, they tried to do, even when even their offices that were back east, uh, you know, Russell has his office just off of uh, Wall Street in kind of the newest building at the time, uh, supposedly the first fireproof building in the world. Although when you research that, you find mm, maybe it wasn't the first, maybe it was you know way down on the list, but that's how they advertise it at the time. And then in Utah, um, you know, obviously it skirts the lake, comes south, and, and is heading uh, down uh, towards Nevada. At the time, of course, this is all, you know, this is all the, um, you know, the, the one territory, the Nevada territory, and um, you know, so the, the connections are, uh, you know, they're not seeing a state line, uh, say. 
Um, what was the relationship with the uh, with with the Mormons? The relationship um, with with Majors, uh, who's the one that kind of deals with uh, well, he deals with all of the kind of physical aspects of the of the company, and he's dealing with the people. Majors is, uh, has a really interesting uh, history, uh, especially as it as it deals with Mormons. His father apparently was one of the people who persecuted uh, Mormons, and there's some pretty good evidence uh, for for that back in uh, Missouri. But Majors uh, has is almost entirely 180 and, and really um, admires uh, the leadership of the church and hires. Um, a number of people, probably the most uh, effective uh, superintendent uh, that in the whole line uh, is a man named Howard Egan, whom um, who has the he's kind of the well we'll call him a superintendent, which was the the technical name that they used, but basically he's the boss from Salt Lake City uh, all the way uh, to the border of uh, of California. And um, he he ran uh, he ran a heck of an operation. Part of part of the reason that uh, it was so dependable was that he had two of his sons and at least one of his son-in-laws uh, working for him. So they did not mess up. And if you um, if you did anything, even if you took a shortcut or tried a shortcut and deviated from you know what. Uh, what Major uh, Egan wanted wanted you to do, you would better have a good excuse and a good reason, and you better have uh, have hit your marks, or you were in trouble. Having said that, his son Howard. Now he had two sons who rode. Howard, uh, who I think was a year or two older than the second son, Raz. Uh, his son Howard has is one of the contenders for the longest run that any Pony Express rider uh, made. And he did it for love. But the problem is he did it not for his love, but for his brother's love. You see, he, Rass was supposed to do a certain route uh, that, you know, was kind of plain Jane out in the desert, just, you know, just a long, drag, draggy ride. But Howard had this ride that included the hometown of this young lass that Rass wanted to impress. So Rass convinced his brother to swap the routes, which took a little bit of doing because they're, you know, a little bit off uh, from each other. So Howard went out, and he started on his brother's route, and he rode, and he rode, and he rode, and he got to the other station, and lo and behold, the person who was supposed to be there with the mail wasn't there. So he said, oh, this is no good. I want to get home. So he started, he started, and he kept riding, and in the end, the when he finally gets to the station, apparently the rider who was supposed to have taken the that kind of uh, loop of the of the Pony Express wasn't had been sick or something and was out, and so Howard was pressed into service to ride back the only way, the back the way that he came with the other the other mail. All in all, he rode some some incredible amount, three hundred and. Uh, 80, well, the, the account's kind of different. Somewhere from 360, 365, all the way almost to 400 miles, which would be the record. And the poor guy, he didn't get anything out of it except, you know, a good night's sleep. Hmm. That's, in, that's incredible. You'd, you'd, <laughs> you'd be totally exhausted. Absolutely. It's, it's a I mean, feat of strength. 
Absolutely. And, you know, that part of, um, well, you know, you would know better than I, but that part of Utah is, uh, you know, during the day, it's extremely hot. And as I say, if you go off the, the trail, uh, especially where the Egan's were, your your horse could easily get, uh, you know, get, get stuck in quicksand or run into some other difficulty. Mm. Driving that distance would tire you out, you know, so I can't imagine Absolutely. riding. Absolutely. I can, I, I'll, I'll attest to that. Yeah. Um, you have some incredible stories about Howard Egan Sr. I don't know, maybe preserve those for the book, but he, uh, he got to, to a scrape and, uh, example of mountain law, for example, and then it's a mountain medicine, uh, Indian helps well, I, him through. Let, let, let's save most of that for the book, but I, I have to say that the, the mountain medicine, I mean, because do you think, do you think we should go there or is that a little bit? That, that, that'd be great. Yeah. If you, if you're willing. Okay. The, um, you know. When you're out on your own, you know, you learn certain tricks and, and how to deal with things, and you're open to alternative types of medicine. And uh, Howard um, got in a scrape. He had some problem with his eye. It was, uh, I guess we'd say today, we'd say it was infected. Um, and he had, he had a number of friends. He was friends with the, the natives who were in the area. And uh, one very knowledgeable Indian came by, uh, his farm one day and saw that uh, Big Chief was in trouble, had a little ailment problem with his eye. And uh, he looked at Egan and he kind of came in really, really close to get a better look. And all of a sudden, he put his mouth on Egan's eye and um, started sucking. I guess that's, uh, that's the way to, the way to put it. And, um, well, you can imagine what Egan's reaction would have been. Um, and then he kind of stepped back and uh, spit spit out what he had sucked and looked at uh, Big Chief and said, you'll be fine in a few days. <laughs> now, I've never had anyone do that to me, but um, I know my reaction, if anyone, even a trusted friend had done that, uh, I wouldn't be thinking that I'd be fine in a few days. But lo and behold, the... Uh, uh, that alternative form of uh, medicine there absolutely worked. So, you know, maybe, maybe if I have eye trouble and I go to the doctor, I'll make a suggestion that they do that. <laughs> yeah, that would, let me know how that goes. Yeah, um, I will. You'll be the first person I call. <laughs> okay. Sounds After good. the malpractice. After right. the malpractice, that's right, that's right. But, but it worked for him, right? So it worked for him. It, it wor- you know, uh, uh, that's what the story goes. And, yeah. you know, the one thing I'll, I'll say about Egan, uh, Egan's, stories uh, do do sound out, you know, they do seem fairly true. Um, there's a couple of things that are a little bit around the edges, but um, it looks by and large. So, you know, I would think that something like that happened. Now, there's another famous um, uh, pony rider and person connected with the pony, and I will leave that one for the book, but uh, he also, you know, was in Utah, though, um, a little further east, and that's Elijah Nicholas Wilson, or or Nick, or uh, the White Indian, as as he's called. And a lot of his stories, they're great. A lot of his stories are extremely entertaining, but uh, there it's a little bit more difficult to uh, say. Okay, well, this is true. There's a lot of gray area. We'll leave that. Mm. Well, we're coming just to have a few minutes left in the conversation. I want to definitely want to ask you about this. This is a uh, um, at the uh, at the very end of the book, 
um, you're talking about your trip. You you traced the trail, and you got lost out there. It's in the desert. Uh, you didn't know where you were, but but you knew. If I keep going west, I'll I'll hit a, a bisecting road, and I'll, I'll get out of this. You got back, and a friend said, "Oh, you you experienced what the Pony Express riders experienced." And you well, said, "No, not at all." Right? <laughs> you didn't not even come at all, close. No. I, the, the the thing is, and uh, you know, when we're lost today, and my cell phone didn't work, and you know, the GPS wasn't there, and whatever. Um, I, when we're lost today, or as, as I did, you know, I know if I go in X direction, eventually I'm going to I'm going to get out of it. Right? I'm going to. There's going to be a road. There's going to be civilization. The, Civilization. There's going to be something. I'll find the car. I did find the car, and you know the car will start, and I'll be able to go. And the worst possible thing. I mean, I have been uh, turned around in you know overseas and not not known exactly where I was. I could find somebody. I could find some civilization, someone who would maybe take pity on me, and uh, you know I would get my way home. The men and women at that time, and not just the pony express riders but the you know the brave pioneers who, who settled uh utah who, who created salt lake city who um, and, you know who opened up the west uh, that the west that area had not been you know even seen by mo- white people or by more than a handful you know just a few decades before a few years before in some cases and those people were when those people were lost those people were lost they were totally, utterly dependent on themselves and how they dealt with nature. And that changes the way that you, that you perceive the world. It's different than the way we perceive the world. I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying that, that we're better. Um, but that perception is different. And the thing I think that I value is that their perception still informs us in a lot of ways. Their resilience, their ability to deal with the uncertainties of nature, to and to put it on their shoulders and carry on, it it still informs our deep legends, and it tells us that we too can can do that. If they could do this, then we we have it easier. At least that's my opinion. Yeah, well said. You know that that idea does inform us, and for some people. They want to go beyond that idea, beyond that inspiration, right? They want to reenact. So there are reenactors. There is a fantastic group of, uh, they call themselves re-riders. It's the uh, national, it's under the auspices of the National Pony Express Association. And they re-ride the whole pony trail in 10 days, remarkably, every year. And this year they're going to be doing it, I believe it starts June um, 19th or 20th, I think. And it will start from Sacramento. One year they go west and west to east, and the other year they go east to west, kind of alternating. This year they start in Sacramento and they uh, end at St. Joe, Missouri. And they will be um, they will be in Utah. I'm not sure what their schedule is, but you can look it up uh, on the web. They do post it, and as the rewrite goes, they post updates and photos. It's a lot of fun, actually. Hmm. Well, it's fascinating history, and of course, it uh, comes right to today as well. The book is a, is a good read. West Like Lightning, The Brief Legendary Ride of the Pony Express. The author, Jim DeFelice, has been with us uh, for the hour. Jim DeFelice, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Oh, thank you for having me, Tom. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, we appreciate you uh, being on with us. And uh, you can continue this conversation if you'd like at upraxcess at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Association for Utah Community Health, providing support for health centers throughout Utah, such as Community Health Centers Incorporated and Enterprise Valley Medical Clinic. Information available at auch.org. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Are you or do you know someone who's a member of a book club? It's about so much more than just the books. And that's true for Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, Candace Bergen, and Mary Steenburgen, who star in the new film Book Club. Mary drops by to talk about what a role like this means to her. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of the Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM, Logan. Logan.